Good morning, church. So glad you could join us for this Sunday morning. Yes, uh, the uh, starting lineup needed to take a breather, and the second string is in, and uh, I'm really looking forward to a chance, an opportunity to um, fellowship with you all and, and study God's Word together. And um, as we are ready to get into God's Word, let's, let's have a word of prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you, we praise you, we glorify your name, we love you, and we thank you for this opportunity to spend some time in your word, to uh, open up your book, your truth, and I pray that your word would have its work in our hearts. I pray that your word would cleanse us. I pray that your word would encourage us. I pray that where necessary, your word would rebuke us. I pray that your word would uh, equip us for every good work that you have ordained for us. Lord, bless your church, bless your body. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen. I have a question for you. Here's the question. When I say this word, I want you to just think for a second and think about your initial response, your initial visceral reaction to this word. The word is gospel. Did you have a second? Did you get a chance to just gospel? What does that word do to you? How about this word? Salvation. What's your visceral reaction when I say the word salvation? Or how about this word, faith? What do you think about just right off the top of your head when those words come to mind? I have to say this, you know, through... 55 years of walking with the Lord, yes, uh, I was five years old when I asked Jesus into my heart, when I surrendered to Christ. And you go through peaks and valleys, and there are times when those words are, I, I say this with grief, are oh, ho-hum. And there are other times uh, where that word just explodes with meaning and and, and poignancy and beauty in our lives. Um, and I want to talk this morning about a group that those words mean something to them that's incredible and fantastic, and all the time they are, yes, when those words come to mind. So here's what we're going to do. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do, and I am just going to assume that in your homes that you all have got your Bibles and that you've got your notebook. If you don't have a notebook, go get a notebook, get a pen, because I'm going to need you to write down lots of verses, all right? We're going to go through a lot of verses to build this case of what we're going to talk about. And I need you to have your Bibles with you because you're going to need to look up some verses, not all the ones that we're going to go through, but you're going to need to look up some verses and I, wanna, I want that good Baptist air conditioning going. I want those pages to be turning, and I want that, that house to feel the breeze of the Bible pages turning, all right? So turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. This is where we've been studying, of course, for those who have been paying attention on our Wednesday night cry out Facebook Live Bible studies. And there's a phrase in here that we're going to spend time on today. So we're going to read verses 10 through 12, and uh, you ready? Here we go. 
Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing. When he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. When they spoke of the things that now have been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Now that's the phrase that we're going to focus on in this message. Even angels long to look into these things. Let's break this down. We're going to look at why are these angels so excited? How excited are they? And really, who are these angels? Frankly, who are these angels? So let's, let's do a short exegesis of this phrase. What are these things that these angels long to look into? What are these things? These things are those uh, things that are proclaimed by the Old Testament prophets concerning the gospel and concerning our salvation. It's very clear, obviously. It's just the context just in front of that phrase, concerning the gospel and our salvation that was revealed to the prophets of old. Those are the things, these things, that they long to look into. But what does it mean that they long to look into that? Does it mean like, hey, check this out. What do you think? Hey, Gabriel, come here. Look at that. Check it out. What do you think about this? No, it means a lot more than that. First off, the word longing. It's a focused and passionate desire. And it's in the, and I want you to hold on to this one. It's in the present indicative, which means it's like a video. It's, it's not, hey, that was cool. You know, I, I see that. I heard about that. That was pretty cool. No, it's a present indicative. It's something that they are always excited about. You, you got me on that? They, they are never not excited about the gospel. It's a video. It's a current event that is going on in their, in their world. And, and it says they long to look into this thing. So is that a, hmm, hey, again, like I said, hey, check it out. Come here, Michael. Let's check this out. Well, let me, let me just break that word down. That word is emphatic, and it stresses nearness, and it describes someone who is coming along close beside, crowding in, and then bending over, and it's just, we're all crowded together, we're bending over, and we're having a look. We're just, we, we, we gotta get a, what, what's everybody looking at? Here, make room for me. I wanna get in here, I wanna check it out. It's that kind of emphatic, getting right in there into the middle of it and making your way so you get a chance to see what's going on. That word is used five times in the New Testament. Three times, three times it's used, this is interesting, I love this, three times it's used when the disciples or uh, Mary were coming up to the tomb that Jesus was no longer in and they're coming up to the tomb, crowding in, bending over and peering inside and seeing and realizing he's not there. The other time besides this verse that it's used is in, is in James, and it's chapter 1, and it talks about 
those who look into the perfect law of liberty, which is the Word of God, which is the way we need to look into the Word of God, crowding in, getting that good look, bending, digging, uh, and pursuing our understanding of the Bible. This is an emphatic word, and the angels are longing to look into these things. Now, we're going to pause for a minute, and we're going to talk about angels, because I, I need you to understand, who are these creatures that are so interested and so desirous of looking into the truths of the gospel as it's laid out throughout the Old Testament, and even now, because remember, this is a video, this is present indicative right now, even now, even as we speak, they're longing to look into this. Who are these angels? I don't know if you know this, but uh, if you don't, you will in a second. The word angel is simply means messenger, angelios. It's the word for messenger in Greek. And in fact, the word gospel, in case you didn't know that, is a combination of two Greek words, you and angelios. Euangelios means good message or good news. So the word angel simply means messenger, and the word gospel means good message or good news. So angels, uh, it means messenger, but let's just break down this group. When did the angels come into existence? What do you think? If you have your Bible, turn to Job chapter 38, verses 1 through 7, and this gives us a pretty good indication of when the angels actually were created. And everybody's like, when did, uh, when did that happen? Job chapter 38, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read this real quickly for you. This is the Lord speaking to Job. He says, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Then he says to Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? Okay, you get this? So while the foundations of the earth were being established, while the cornerstone was being set, while the, the, the string lines and the plumb lines were being laid out and the, and the the earth was initially being created, it says this in verse 7, while the morning stars sang together, and what? All the angels shouted for joy. The angels were created on first at the most the second day of creation. They were right at the very beginning as the foundations of the earth were being laid, as the string lines and the plumb lines were, were being set in, a, in, a, in this... Uh, metaphorical builder, tech, uh, builder uh, wording that the Bible is using here, they were there as the foundations of the earth were being set. So day one or two of creation, how many days did it take the Lord to create the earth? It was six, right? And on the seventh day, he rested. So they were there at the very beginning. This is when the angels sprang into existence, and when it says that all the angels shouted for, the, for joy, when whatever that moment that occurred, that they suddenly came into being and they saw the Almighty laying the foundations of the earth and of the universe and they shouted for joy, 
in, in, in exultation at the creative process of the Almighty. This is when they came into existence. Job chapter 1, verse 6, if, you, if you're curious about that, it says, uh, when the angels shouted for joy, your Bible may say, when the sons of God shouted for joy, uh, and, and that's true, that's the actual, b'nai Elohim is the actual word, um, and that definitely refers to angels, because if you go over to Job chapter 1, verse 6, it says there that when the sons of God appeared before the Lord in heaven, and, and it says Satan was among them, because he was created as an angel, and that's when that whole story started with Job and, and, and the Lord and the enemy and the suffering. But the B'nai Elohim, the angels, shouted for joy. So they were there at the beginning of creation. Now, write these verses down. We're not going to read them, but I just want you to write them down because I want you to get an understanding, get a grip on who the angels are. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 talks about the seraphim, the fiery beings, the fiery ones who are continually shouting out concerning the holiness of God. And if you read in Ezekiel chapter 10, that's another verse I want you to write down, Ezekiel chapter 10, the uh, cherubim are described there. The seraphim and the cherubim are uh, probably the same beings. And these are, the cherubim uh, means guardian. And in fact, in... Um, in uh, Ezekiel chapter 28, it describes the fallen cherubim, Satan, who was a guardian cherubim on the holy mount of God. Uh, if you go to several chapters, Daniel talks about this, uh, Ezekiel chapter 10, we talked about it, uh, Revelation chapter 4, we the NIV translates that the four living creatures, the King James has it another way, but we, we have the cherubim there crying out, holy, holy, holy. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, 9, 10, and 12 talks about angels, but it doesn't necessarily talk about the cherubim or the seraphim. It talks about messenger angels. It talks about warrior angels in those four chapters, Daniel chapter 7, 9, uh, 10, and 12. And then in Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, it talks about four angels who have control over some of the elemental forces of the earth, and these four angels in particular have control over the four winds of the earth. And so this is what we know about angels based on these particular verses, and there's many others, but these are primary places. Angels are powerful, immortal beings who have different functions, titles, and offices. Powerful, immortal beings who have different functions, titles, and offices. This is how powerful they are. When, uh, say for instance, Daniel uh, or Ezekiel was uh, confronted with an angel that was just, you know, in, that's such a powerful, exalted looking being, sometimes they fell over as though dead. Um, always when they uh, encountered the glorified Christ, they would fall over as though dead, but sometimes even an angelic being would cause them to lose their ability to speak, their legs would go, grow weak, they'd fall over, they might faint. This is the effect that they can have on us. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, you know, we have this thing that we talk about, right? Our guardian angel. You know, there's an angel assigned to me. We, we, we think that. 
I'm not sure about that exactly, but we do know this from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, that they minister to us, the saints of God. God has appointed them and anointed them to minister to us, his saints. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, it says that uh, sometimes when we've entertained strangers, what does it say? We've entertained angels unawares. So they move among us incognito at times, and there might be an angel that brushes past you. You don't even know. We don't know. They have a job to do. They're on the job. Maybe it's to come give a word of encouragement to us. We don't know. But it says there in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, they sometimes move among us incognito. And then uh, in verse uh, Daniel chapter 10, Ephesians 6 also talks about this, and in Revelation chapter 12, it appears that there is a spiritual hierarchy. For instance, Michael, the archangel, right? He's called the archangel, and he talks about him in uh, Daniel chapter 10 and also in Revelation chapter 12 and in Jude verse 9. Michael, the archangel, I'll just tell you about Jude verse 9. It says that Michael the archangel contended with the devil over the body of Moses. And so there was a battle raging, a spiritual battle raging. I suspect that the devil wanted the body of Moses so that he could uh, draw the Israelites into idolatry, using the body of Moses for those kind of purposes. And it says that Michael contended with Satan over the body of Moses. And it's interesting. It's just a little rabbit trail right here. But you know, you know how he contended? Did he draw out that sword and start slashing away? Did he just did he go into their uh, spirals as angels and flipping and spreading uh, all kinds of uh, glowing fire? No. This is how Michael, the archangel, the chief angel, contended with Satan. He said, the Lord rebuke you. Hmm? We need to, we, we, we don't dare do more than that when we're contending with the enemy. In Ephesians chapter 6, it talks also about a hierarchy, and this is most, more of the demonic element of uh, angelic powers. And then in Daniel chapter 10, and just real quickly, Daniel chapter 10, uh, uh, Gabriel is uh, sent on a mission to give Daniel a message from the Lord, and uh, he's delayed by a demonic power behind the the Persian throne, and he's delayed for three weeks. And, it, and he said, but Michael the archangel came and battled with me, and then I was released to come and give the message to you. So, so we have these things. There appears to be a spiritual hierarchy with these angelic beings. Now, why? Why are they so excited about the gospel? I mean, these are beings beyond our understanding, beings beyond our comprehension, beings uh, uh, that, that, as I said, if, if one were to appear before me right now in this room in, in uh, the unveiled splendor of the reflection of the glory of God that he ab abides in, I would probably faint. I mean, I'd fall to the floor with a crash because... I am just a mere mortal, flesh and blood and bone, and I'm, this is something far, far beyond me, something supernatural, okay? But why are these beings so excited 
about our salvation? Why are they so excited about the gospel? So we're going to run through. We need to understand what this is they're excited about. And in understanding that, we need to understand uh, several things. We need to understand the uh, what they saw. Remember, they were there at the beginning of creation, right? So they saw uh, God create Adam, and they saw God create Eve, and they saw God bend over by that riverbank and breathe into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and they saw Adam created in the image of God. They saw Adam and Eve together walking in the garden with God. They saw Adam and Eve clothed, as it were, in the resplendent glory of the Lord that was their clothing. They saw the intimacy that Adam and Eve and God shared. They saw all of these things. They saw Adam and Eve as innocent. They realized that they were also immortal, unstained by sin, in full and intimate fellowship with God, and with a perfect body that was built to live forever. Now, if you read and just write these verses down, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, Genesis chapter 2, verses 7, all the way to the end of the chapter, right? Genesis 1, 26 to 31, Genesis 2, starting with verse 7 to the end of the chapter, and Genesis 3, 8, which that particular verse kind of describes the, the, the fellowship that they had had and then that they lost. You'll see that they were unstained by sin, uh, they walked in full and intimate fellowship with God, and they had this perfect body that was meant to live forever and was built for glory. Now, what happened? And this again is what the angels saw. What happened? In Genesis chapter 3, we read the account of the fall. Adam and Eve sinned. They took the fruit, they ate the fruit, and they fell. And this is what happened to these glorious creatures, the man and the woman, created in the image of God, and this is what the angels saw. When they disobeyed God, what happened at that moment? And what happened uh, subsequently to the entire human race? Are you ready? Write these verses down, Romans 3.10, Romans 5.12, and Romans 5.19. Romans 3.10, Romans 5.12, and Romans 5.19. The first thing that we have to understand of what happened to man was we all, but Adam and Eve first, were marked and marred by sin. Again in Romans chapter 3, verses 13, Romans 5, 12 again in Romans 5, 17, Adam and Eve not only were marked and marred by sin, but Adam and Eve were marked and marred by death. Death happened on many levels that moment that they disobeyed God. Death happened physically. Now their bodies were no longer immortal. Now their bodies became biodegradable, corruptible, aging, and eventually to return to dust. And they died also in this way. Now they were separated from God. They were no longer in fellowship with him, but they were dead. Physically, they were dying, and spiritually, they were dead. And the angels could see this. Sin, death, and the enemy now have dominion. Remember at the beginning, Genesis 1.26 talks about this and other verses. Uh, the Lord gave to Adam and Eve dominion over the earth, over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the beasts of the field. They were given dominion over the earth. But now, 
when they fell, when sin entered into the world, sin, death, and the enemy stole dominion and took dominion of the earth. You read about that in Romans 6.14, the earth, uh, sin having dominion, Romans 6.14. Romans 5.17, death has dominion. And in Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, and Ephesians 2.2, the enemy has dominion, okay? Romans 6.17, we see that not only did sin enter the world, death entered the world, and Adam and Eve were marred by sin and death, and uh, out of fellowship with God and spiritually dead, but also enslaved. We are enslaved. The moment that we're conceived, we're enslaved. The moment we're born, we are enslaved. Romans 6, 17. In Ephesians 2, 17, fellowship was broken then, fellowship is broken now. And again, we've talked about this before, but Romans 8, verse 22 and following, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 53, our bodies... You know, if you're, if you're five years old or 15 years old, you don't feel it. But by the time you hit my age, you feel it. Your body's breaking down. Our bodies are biodegradable. We will die, and they will return to dust. That's what the angels saw. They saw man in his, in his uh, perfect, innocent, glorious uh, fellowship with the Father, the image of God, unmarred state, and then they saw the fall. They saw sin, death. Uh, come upon men. They saw slavery happen. They saw bondage. They saw uh, all of these things in the broken fellowship. And, and now, now, what is God going to do? How is God going to fix this? What's going to happen? Is it possible? So this is the question that must have been going through their minds, and this is the question that God began to answer. God's plan, God's plan put into play, Romans eleven thirty three through 34 says this. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Who can understand his ways and his, and his errors are beyond finding out? Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. The angels didn't understand the plan that God had already put in place. The prophets, as they began to write out the Old Testament scriptures, couldn't understand what God was about, but God had a plan. And not only that, if you look at Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, and 1 Peter 1.20, you understand this, that the plan was put into place. The plan has never not been in place. The plan for redemption, the plan for the cross, the plan for Jesus, the plan for the incarnation, it says, was in place before the worlds were created. Revelation 13, 8, go read it. 1 Peter 1, 20. Jesus and the incarnation was the plan from before the worlds began. Not only that, Ephesians 1, 4, Matthew 25, 34. Ephesians 1, 4 says, uh, we were chosen to be holy in him before the worlds began also. So we, the church, before the worlds began, we're part of the plan. We were chosen before the foundations of the world. Well, how did this happen, and, and how could this be understood by the angels? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we get the first whisper of the plan of God as the writers of the Old Testament began to write it down. He says to the woman and to the, to the enemy, he says, 
and to your seed, your seed, woman, will crush the enemy's head and the enemy will bruise his heel. So we see all of a sudden the plan begin to unfold in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, we see that the plan also involves this first principle, this first principle, and, and, it, and it's highlighted in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. It says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. You remember when Adam and Eve uh, sinned, and that evening, God came walking through the garden, and he was looking for them. And they had looked at themselves, and they realized the glory had departed. They were naked, and they were ashamed, and so they hid. And in their shame and in their hiding, they had tried to fashion for themselves fig leaves to cover their shame, to cover their nakedness. And after the pronouncement of consequences of that sin happened, it says God himself slew an animal, shed his blood, and then out of the skin of the animal fashioned clothes for them. This is the first principle that was laid down that blood must be spilt for sin to be atoned. And that principle was uh, launched and put in place um, all the way up to the present time. In Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17, Genesis chapter 22, we see that the lineage of the seed is established through Abraham and then through Isaac and then through Jacob and then through Judah and on into the first and second Samuel through David and then Solomon all the way up to, and when we come to the Gospels, to Jesus. We see that the lineage of the seed is established. In Ruth chapter 3, verse 12, we suddenly are, are, are um, given a glimpse into really God's plan because we have this word that comes at us and this word is redeemer, kinsman redeemer. And we find that that uh, whoever's going to be the one that is going to rescue us and save us from our sins, he needs to be someone that's related to us. You understand? He needs to be someone that's related to us. All through the Old Testament, that word redeemer is that same word that's translated kinsman redeemer in Ruth chapter 3, verse 12. It's translated the avenger of blood in Deuteronomy 19, 12. And the Lord says in Exodus 6, 6, this is what he says. He says this in Exodus 6, 6, and in Isaiah 48, 17, he says, the Lord says, I am your redeemer. Do you understand what God is saying there? Because that word means kinsman redeemer. It means blood relative, blood kin. And the Lord says, I am your kinsman redeemer. I am your Goel. He is declaring a truth that they don't understand then, that they wouldn't understand until the, the appointed time. The, the unknown mystery that became the heart cry of the Old Testament, Job talked about this in Job chapter 16. Job said, okay, I'm going through all of this pain, all of this turmoil, all of this suffering, and this is what I need. I need someone who can understand me and my frailty and can stand between me and Almighty God and understand Him and stand before Him with authority and yet understand my needs and my frailties and represent me. There needs to be a mediator that knows me intimately and can stand with authority before God. This was the heart cry of the Old Testament. And as we scan through the Old Testament, we see two pictures emerging. We see a conquering king 
and we see a suffering servant. And the prophets saw this, and the angels saw this as they, as they viewed what God was up to, but how does a conquering king and a suffering servant, how can they be reconciled? How can we understand this mystery? And the Old Testament prophets long to understand it, and the angels long to look into it. And then there's 400 years of silence. 400 years of silence. And after the, the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament was written, the book of Malachi, no more prophecies for 400 years. But God was moving. God was working. God was bringing all of the circumstances of the world to a certain place, a certain point in time when his plan would be unveiled. Right around 4 BC, there was an old priest and he was performing his duties in the temple and his name was Zechariah. And suddenly an angel appeared to him. It was Gabriel again. And an angel appeared to him and said, Hey, Zechariah, you and your wife Elizabeth, you are esteemed of the Lord. And you're going to give birth, she's going to give birth to a son. And that son that she's going to give birth to is going to be the forerunner for the Messiah. He's going to prepare the people for the promised Messiah. Suddenly, these echoes and these longings of the Old Testament were beginning to unfold, and the angels themselves were beginning to understand. I can imagine Gabriel in heaven, and somebody comes to him and says, hey, the Lord needs you. And, and Gabriel goes and heads to the Lord and said, okay, send this message to Zechariah. And Gabriel's like, whoa, this is, this is it? This is it? We don't even know what it is, but this is it. So he goes and gives that message to Zechariah, and that was foretelling the birth of John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin. And then Gabriel's given another task. Go give this message to this, this young girl. Her name is Mary. And he goes and he tells Mary, you who are, who are highly esteemed of the Lord, the the uh, Most High will overshadow you, and you will become great with child, and he will be called the Son of God, and he will save their people from their sins. And Mary's like, wait a minute, I haven't known a man. And, but no, this is a miraculous thing that's going to happen. We don't even understand how it's going to happen. I don't know that Gabriel could figure it out. Uh, and then Gabriel also gives a message to Joseph, don't, 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 don't you dare. Don't put Mary aside. This is what's happening. And you need to protect her and protect this baby. And I forgot about this. Two years prior to these messages coming, two years prior, there was a group of astrologers from uh, the land of the Chaldeans. About two years travel time via camel to get to Palestine, to get to Jerusalem, to get to Bethlehem. Two years prior, somehow, somehow in all of the, 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 the weirdness of, of, the, uh, of the occultic 
uh, practices that they practice, somehow there was a sign in the heavens that they realized, uh, pronounced that there was an imminent, powerful, glorious king on his way. And they, they got on their camels, they gathered their gifts, and two years prior to this announcement from Gabriel, they knew something momentous, something world-changing was happening, and they headed to that place where that child would be born. So we have the announcement of this thing, this plan that God had put into place before the worlds began, beginning to unfold, and then we have the proclamation and the birth. So think about this, right? Now remember, the angels, I, I just dig the idea that the angels are all excited about the gospel. And, and I kind of get it because they saw the fall of mankind. They saw the brokenness of God's uh, 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 people who were created in his image. And they were probably grieved at that. And how was he going to fix it? And now they're beginning to understand something that they could not have conceived is going to happen. And on uh, and and on that moment, that moment when when um, Mary was conceived and found to be with child, this momentous, mysterious thing actually happened. And now the angels sort of began to understand what we call the incarnation. And these are the these are the passages that talk about this. But but remember that night, the night of the actual birth of the Savior. What happened? So there's shepherds out in the field. Uh, keeping watch over their flock by night. And it says that an angel appeared to them. Now, there's a whole host of angels all around right now, but they're, gonna, they're just going to have fun with this announcement. And so the angel appears to the shepherds, and the angel says, Fear not. Yeah, see? We would, we'd be, we would be sore afraid. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings, good news, right? the gospel of great joy, which shall be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is the Messiah, the Lord. And then at that moment, from horizon to horizon, the Shekinah glory of the Lord was there, and the angelic hosts filled the sky and began to sing their great song, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, The heavenly host was singing about an event that John in John chapter 1 wrote about. It says this in John 1, verse 1 and 14. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, God Himself. In the beginning, and then we have this parenthetical statement, and then verse 14 takes up that sentence, and it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So John gave us the theological framework for this great and momentous event that occurred uh, when Mary conceived and gave birth to the Messiah, gave birth to Jesus, gave birth 
to the Son of God. Paul also writes about it and, and helps us to understand the theological framework in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. It says, uh, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, who did not consider it uh, robbery to be called equal with God. He didn't have to steal that. It belonged to him. Equality with God was his. It says, yet he emptied himself, and he made himself of no reputation, and he took upon himself the form of a servant, and he was found in likeness as a man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And then Jesus he was born, and he lived his life. And I need to read to you from Hebrews chapter 2. We've got, we got three more sections, and we're just going to read these real quick. Hebrews chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 10 through 11. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. You see, he indeed became our kinsman redeemer. It says we are the same family. And then if we look over in that same chapter to verses 14, since the children have flesh, that's us, and blood, he too, Jesus, shared in our humanity so that by his death he may break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus became our kinsman redeemer. That's the mystery that could not be understood. That's the mystery that when it was known, how could it be known? How could it be known that God himself, God himself, who was so much higher and loftier than any of the angels could have imagined, could possibly reach, took it upon himself to descend into the darkness of this earth, to become a man and still be God, and take upon himself the form of a servant and endure the cross and despise the shame. And, and indeed, that's what happened. He died for us. He died in our place. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 to 14. Hebrews 9, 13 to 14. The blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Jesus, his death, gave us access to be able to serve the living God. And of course, the resurrection. The resurrection sealed it. You can read in 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 22, read about the importance of the resurrection and how that sealed our salvation, sealed the work. It's done. It's complete. Now, finally, You know, it says in Luke chapter 15, verse 7, Luke 15, 7, and, and I'm going to tell you, Luke 15, I'm just going to turn there real quick. Luke 15 is the chapter that has the parable of the lost sheep, right? 
And it's also the chapter that has the parable of the woman who lost the coin in her home, and she just did everything she could to find it. And when she found it, what did she do? Luke chapter 15, the parable of the lost coin, (laughs) and the parable of the lost sheep. And at the end of those parables, look at verse 7. Now, this is the parable of the lost sheep. So, when that lost sheep is lost, the shepherd, that's Jesus. All right, you 99, you're here, you're safe. I'm going to go and I'm going to find you and I'm going to bring you back home. And when he does, this is what happens. I tell you, Jesus says, that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who did not need to repent. And when that woman loses that valuable coin that she had, and she turns the house upside down, and when she finally finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. And Jesus says again, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of of God over one sinner who repents. It's party time when, when one sinner repents. This is the angels, these powerful angelic beings that, you know, we saw these different verses that describe them, and you can look at them later. And can you imagine... Can you imagine the rejoicing, the exultation? They're throwing a party over one sinner that repents. Um, excuse me. I, uh, I love our church. And one of the things I love about our church is that... Uh, Sarah? Yes, I'm sorry. One of the things I love about our church... I need a, a Kleenex. One of the things I love about our church is that when we have our message, and pastor's really good about this, thank you. Pastor's really good about this. See? I get all emotional when I start talking about our salvation and the gospel and all of that. So at our church, we have a salvation message, right? We have a salvation, we have, a, we have a, uh, an invitation at the end. And... Uh, Chris, my wife, and I, we like to sit towards the front. And I'm telling you, whenever, and this happens frequently, somebody at at the time when the pastor says, hey, you know what, if you want to come, receive Christ as your Savior. And and, and we're towards the front. We don't know what's going on back there, but all of a sudden we hear this shouts, and we hear this cheering, and we hear this clapping, and we go, somebody's coming. Somebody's going to get saved today. Somebody's coming down to meet Jesus, and just there's a rejoicing here and now with us. And the same thing's going on in heaven. I remember, uh, I can't tell you how many times. One time we were in one of our outreach studies, and this guy had been in our study for six months, and he was antagonistic to the Lord. He was fussing and fuming and fighting over the Lord. His life was rough. It didn't pan out. He didn't understand and we kept sharing the gospel and kept sharing the gospel, kept sharing the gospel. And every now and then, we just, you know, does anybody want to receive Christ as their Savior? And he was just a grump. And he wore me out. And one day, one Thursday night, there was time again. It was time. The gospel was clear. It was clearly presented. 
and, 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 and it was time to just, if anybody wants to receive Christ as their Savior, hey, this is just a simple prayer you can pray. And so we bowed our heads and we prayed that prayer. And that man, he looked up. And those of us that were there, we saw. We saw what the angels can see all the time. They can see the transformation. They see the darkness becoming light. They see the spiritual chains falling off. They see the, the soul set free. They see the spirit enter into that man. They see the, the, the spirit of Christ come into that man. They see that, but we saw it that night because when he looked up, we saw Jesus in him. We saw the holy glow on his face. And that man was saved, and we had a party. And I don't care how young you are, and you're watching this, I don't care if you're four years old or five years old. You can get saved right now. You can pray with your parents, and you can be saved. I don't care if you're 60 or 70 or 80. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to get saved. I'm going to just quote one more verse, and then we'll be done. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confessing with your mouth that he is Lord means this, that you are, you are acknowledging him as your Lord and you are surrendering yourself to him. I surrender to you, Jesus. You are my Lord. And then believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that means you understand what he's done for you. You understand that he died in your place so that you might live. He shed his own blood so that you could live. His blood paid the price for your sin and my sin. And you can be glorious, gloriously saved right now. So as we close... I just, I just want to encourage you, wherever you're at, this moment, uh, we're going to, stop, we're going to uh, close with prayer, but you can pray that prayer of salvation. You can confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You can, can confess, I know that you paid the price for my sin, and I surrender to you. You can do that wherever you're at. And if you do that, would you please... Email us at church. You have all the information in front of you on the screen, how to get a hold of us. Let us know. Let us uh, come alongside of you. Let us direct you in the right direction, how to grow in your faith, how to grow deep in your faith, and how to, how to begin to understand this word and all of those things, and let us know, okay? All right, let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you. What a glorious salvation that we have. What a glorious gospel. We love you, Lord. Lord, I pray that there will be folks that get saved today. I pray that there'll be children that get saved today. Pray that there'll be young people that get saved today. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, church. God bless you. We love you. And we're praying for you.